according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Last week, we concluded our development on episodes 17 and 18. You remember we had combined a couple of episodes related to the Passover uh, that his disciples prepared the Passover, uh, that they uh, that there was also jealousy that was rebuked at that time. In fact, we can uh, I'll just read a little bit out of uh, Luke 22 to uh, set the stage for where we are here today. Um, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, and uh, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and they arranged for the betrayal. And in verse 7 of Luke 22, the first day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Peter sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And uh, all the operation here, they didn't even know where it was going to be. They had to uh, spot a man at the city gate with a water pitcher and follow him to the house that he was going to and say to the uh, to the owner of the house that the uh, teacher says to you, where is the guest room? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. And so we, uh, as we introduced episodes 17 and 18, we tried to set the stage uh, by describing this upper room where so many of these things are going to take place. Five and six of these, uh, six or seven of these different events are all taking place here in this upper room uh, on the night in which he's betrayed. All right. So then uh, John 13, remember this is a, a harmonization uh uh, effort in this life of Christ ministry where we're combining Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Turning over to John 13 now, we get uh, material that's not found in the Synoptic Gospels. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. All right. Now, we know what follows in verse 5 and following. He pours water into the basin. He starts washing their feet. And Peter starts complaining. And so we have teaching related to this here in John 13. And we'll get to this here in just a moment. But before we get to the, the washing itself in verse 5, there is a tremendous introduction in verses 1 through 4. And uh, that's what I want to spend our time with today. I don't, in fact, I'll be surprised if we get through 1 through 4 today and get to uh, verse 5 and actually deal with uh, the dirty feet themselves. We've got background that we have to introduce, and so that's what we'll do here today. Before we start any of it, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the privilege we have to assemble together today. And we're, we're a little light today, Father. Um, folks are traveling and um, we didn't have the ladies' prayer time, Father. But nevertheless, for the folks that are here, we thank You for them. We ask for Your hand of blessing upon our study. And Father, please set aside distractions. Open the eyes of our understanding. Father, uh, the truth of Your Word is so powerful. And, uh, and we need it. We need your truth on a day-by-day basis. So, Father, minister to us today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. So, episode 19, foot washing. Um, there's a part of me that would love to uh, <laughs> take uh, about a year to teach this. And I would start by, by teaching everybody uh, first-year Greek. And then uh, once you have that under your belt, then we can come back to to these verses. So I guess instead of doing that, I'll just try to explain that this is an amazing section. Uh, verses two through four is all one great big long sentence. And, and really, one through four is almost one great big long sentence, except there is a uh, uh, I missed it the first few times I looked at it. There actually is a, uh, a finite verb in verse one, and that is the word for love. He loved them to the end. And so something that we want, want to do is um, 
oftentimes if you have a very complicated sentence or a structure that just goes on and on and on, uh, you just stop what you're doing and you look at it and say, all right, what's the main verb and start there, <laughs> okay? And um, the main verb of verse 1 is, um, and, and loved is used twice, having loved his own who are in the world. That's not a verb, it's a participle. The verb is he loved them to the end, all right? And the subject of that is Jesus. So before the feast of the Passover, Jesus. And uh, then take everything else out of there and it's loved them to the end. That's your sentence. Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. All right. Loved them to the end. And um, then in verses two through four, um, we, we are not even introduced to a new subject. The subject is still Jesus all the way back from verse one before the feast of the Passover. Jesus. All right. Um, and then in verses two and three, we got all these circumstances about what's already happened, what's already happened, what's already happened. This is in his heart. This is in his heart. This is in his head. But then finally, in verse four, you got three verbs got up, laid aside, taking and girded. All right. So got up, laid aside and taking uh, is all preparation for girded himself. And that's what uh, hopefully we'll outline here under main point one. All right. So point one, if you're going to keep notes and follow the outline, John 13 verses one through four forms a grammatically remarkable introduction to this portion of the gospel of John. I'm calling it grammatically remarkable. (laughs) That's just my term for it. It is uh, an amazing combination of participles, all that set the table for the, uh, the main action of what's really happening. So, um, you know, we could do the same thing. We could say, uh, Pastor Bob, uh, driving to the church, unlocking the door, turning on the lights, checking the thermostats, uh, fixing the coffee, walking up to the pulpit. You know, all of these ing, you know, uh, terms, all of these participles haven't really gotten to the main point yet, have I? I'm just kind of describing the circumstances, describing the background, describing the detail. And that's what we have here. So, you know, uh, feast of the pa- before the feast of the Passover, knowing this, knowing that, having loved. Okay, that's all just setting the setting the table. That's just laying out the circumstances. And same thing with uh, with verses two and three. All of that is just setting the circumstances for getting up from supper, laying aside his garments, taking a towel. He girded himself. He girded himself. All right. Now. Um. I want to do a couple of things because it's almost like you can take the gospel of John and break it down into two books. And and sometimes theologians have done that. They've taken chapters, uh, you know, one through 12 and called that the book of signs. There are seven signs that are done there. The the miracles that Jesus performed. And these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So uh, he's doing the miracles there in chapters two through 12. He's doing the miracles. The first miracle, the water to wine in chapter two. Okay, so chapter one introduces the whole book, but chapter one introduces the signs. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And you've got a powerful four verse introduction there, don't you, in John chapter one. Now, likewise, for the second half of the book, chapters 13 and following, um, sometimes theologians will call that the book of um, of uh, glory. All right. As, as the father glorifies the son, he's obedient to the point of death. He goes to the cross. He's resurrected and glorified. And so this. Uh, introduction here verses one through four of chapter 13 is very similar to the introduction of, of chapter one and, and i'm going to use the subpoints of this to spell this out all right so if you can just hold your finger there in chapter 13 and then flip back to chapter one and then somehow i know you can handle this this is not complicated <clears throat> somehow just keep your fingers at both places can you do that all right and so uh, you can just kind of hold those pages between your fingers there and, and we'll be we'll be glancing back and forth between chapter one and chapter 13. And I want you to see this because there's there's some neat uh, blessing to this. All right. And again, short of teaching you Greek and walking you through, I thought about putting a sentence diagram up here <coughs> to show you uh, where the verbs are. All right. Um. Because chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming into the world. And chapter 13 now, he's getting ready to go out of the world. And, and uh, all of the contrast here. So point A, 
He was, uh, what we read in John 1, verse 10, He was in the world, the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. This is how the book gets introduced. He was in the world. So sub-point A. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. This is how the book starts. This is how the introduction of chapter 1 gets started. And when we find in the contrast... We find out here in chapter 13 and verse 1, His hour had come that He would depart out of the world. So in chapter 1, He's coming, and in chapter 13, He's going. And these are the ways that, that these chapters paint the picture to describe what's happening here. So sub-point A, He was in the world. The world was made through Him. The world did not know Him. And then point B, His hour had come that He would depart out of the world back to the Father. He would depart out of the world back to the Father. He came from the Father. Remember that too was a a feature of chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. And so where is uh, is Jesus going now? Back to the Father. So we have these neat parallels and contrasts. There's more. Point C, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. The fact that Jesus was born in humanity to Israel, that they were his own, that in the meantime, from the fall of Adam through the process of Gentile history, God called out a chosen people. He called out the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He set them apart. And in the process of 4,000 years or more of promising a coming Savior, that He would have, that He would not only you know, identify in humanity as being a descendant of Adam, we all do, but that He would be a part of a family. He would be part of a clan. He would be part of a tribe. He would be part of a nation. God's chosen people. And they would be the ones that you would think of all the people on earth who would receive him. You would understand. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't blame the, the Germans or the Greeks or the Romans or what have you. But these are the Jews. These are his own people. And yet they did not receive him. <clears throat> That's the introduction to the book in chapter 1. We contrast that under point D. It didn't stop his love, did it? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so I find very interesting here the comparisons and the contrast between John chapter 1 and John chapter 13. And like I say, it's like a whole new book starting again, as if. Uh, this this event here is so momentous that John, in authoring this gospel, begins this section in, a, in an amazing way, similar to how he started the book itself. like uh, Almost like a, a reboot or a restart on the book. Let's just start this book all over again with another glorious introduction. And so we see this here. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, there's going to be a remnant, of course. After it says his own did not receive him, it does say, but as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So even though there is by and large an overall rejection, okay, what we would think of as a corporate rejection. And this is is, uh, significant because part of what we deal with when we get into chapters 13 through 17 Uh, or 13 and following, is that we're dealing with material that no longer is relating to corporate Israel. After the betrayer departs, he starts to give them, he says, a new commandment I give you now. And he starts to command his disciples about uh, to love one another. And he starts to promise them that after his departure, the Holy Spirit is coming. And he starts to give them what is otherwise mystery doctrine, material that was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. He starts to uh, unveil the first uh, act of the unveiled mystery that is the church age, you understand. Now, they're not going to understand it until, uh, until Pentecost. 
But after Pentecost, they will understand it. And it's, it's important that we identify that, that this section of the Gospel of John is church, not Israel. Okay? And uh, in a large way to start to do that is to understand that even going back to chapter 1 here, we have a distinction between corporate acceptance and rejection and individual acceptance and rejection. And so his own, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel at large, did not receive him. Corporately, Israel rejected their Messiah. When will, when will Israel accept their Messiah? Second Advent. That's right. That's right. Because they're promised. In fact, the scriptures say all Israel will be saved. Well, that's never happened yet. When's that going to happen? Second Advent. It's going to happen when all Israel is actually humbled. <laughs> when tribulation is unleashed. When God's wrath brings them to repentance. Remember? The uh, purpose for God's wrath and the purpose for that wrath poured out to bring about that repentance. So, uh, important that we identify with this, that as a nation, they have rejected him. They are crucifying their king. He is going to depart out of this world and go back to the Father. But individuals now, as many as did receive him, Peter got saved, John got saved, the disciples, there were more than 500 at one time that were assembled together to bear witness to the resurrected Lord. He had, you know, we don't know of, of the thousands that he fed and the thousands that he ministered, how many actually received eternal life, we don't know. But clearly, I think all the 500 did and, and, and others, you know, as many as received him, they became children of God. And that's uh, an important consideration. All right, so corporate acceptance and rejection is different from individual acceptance and rejection. Now, on an individual basis, of course, we have uh, the realities of where we are today in the church age. We have the fact that when you believe in Christ, you, you're a part of the body. And when you don't believe in Christ, you are uh, in that lost estate in uh, in Adam. And that's what we're going to get to as we uh, see these things in, in chapters 13 through 17. All right. There's more. Okay. So we have the um, the circumstances here. Let me get back now to, to John 13. I think that's what I wanted to highlight out of chapter 1. Coming into the world versus going out of the world. Coming to his own and being rejected by his own. But yet loving his own. Loving his own to the end. Can you imagine? It's one thing to love them at first. But then after the first rejection, after the second rejection, after the third rejection, I mean, how many times before finally you just throw your hands up and say, that's it, I'm done with these guys. Okay? This is why the contrast, I love it in Hebrews chapter 2 between Moses and Jesus. Right? Moses went to his own. Did they accept him or did they reject him? See? And after enough times of being told, you know, we're out of here, we're going back to Egypt or we had it made, Moses finally threw his hands up and said, forget it then, I'm done with you guys. Told the Lord to blast these people, okay? Smacked the rock a couple times and said, you rebels. But praise God that Jesus Christ never did that. He passed the, the test. And so it's, it's kind of fun to see. We can, we can view all of Adam's testing that Adam failed and, and Jesus passed. We can view Moses' testing that he failed and Jesus passed. And all of the, the typology, the types of Christ uh, where David failed but Jesus passed, you understand? Every type that fell short and Jesus fulfilled it all. It's, it's an amazing thing to, uh, to put together. Now, back to chapter 13 then. Um, Jesus, ha Jesus here, knowing, having loved, and uh, during supper, um, these are the circumstances. Now, there's, there's a lot of things at work. You understand the planning that went into this night. And I want to break this down for you under point E. The participles of verses 2 and 3. The participles of verses 2 and 3 demonstrate that all the attendant circumstances are in place. Having been put in place over the days, weeks, years, millennia. Leading up to the leading to this upper room on this Passover Eve. The participles of verses two and three. In other words, Satan's got his activity going on. God the Father has his activity going on. And they've been going on. And it's all coming together on this night. The participles of verses two and three demonstrate that all the attendant circumstances are in place. As I said, um, are, is it necessary to say that? No, none of it's necessary. We could say, uh, you know, um, 
Pastor Bob taught Bible class. Subject, verb. You know, there it is. Um, if you say on Wednesday, okay, now you've set the timetable. You've set the time frame like we have here before the Feast of Passover. Okay, set the time frame. But then when you start spelling out all of the attendant circumstances, you start spelling out all of the action that preceded the activity of the main verb. As I illustrated a little bit ago, um, driving to the church building, unlocking the door, turning off the alarm, checking the thermostat, fixing the coffee, walking up to the podium. Yeah, and just keep adding to the mix. Okay, that can, that can go on and on and on. And I suspect for a lot of it, it doesn't need to be said. Okay, it just kind of goes without saying. And frankly, who cares? <laughs> right? In earthly terms, none of that's even important. But when God makes the point of actually spelling it out, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, right? So why does he bother telling us these details? What is the significance we're supposed to glean out of these details? And I think there's, uh, I think there's quite a bit. All right. So, verse 2. During supper. Uh, or you can even... there's manuscript questions on this it could even be after supper uh, and so forth but um, the devil having already put into the heart of judas iscariot the son of simon to betray him we start off with activity of the adversaries so sub point one under e sub point one the devil crafted a plan and drafted an instrument the devil crafted a plan and drafted an instrument And actually, he had this already prepared before the, before the meal even started. The betrayal took place the day before. Uh, we saw that in one of the earlier episodes that where he went to the chief priest and he said, what will you pay me? And the chief priest said, uh, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver, right? Because we're interested in fulfilling Zechariah. <laughs> no, they didn't say that. Uh, but it is, it's remarkable how the very amount they paid and uh, the potter's field that's going to be purchased here uh, in the next couple of days... Um, it's, it's remarkable how all of that was, was prophesied as well. God the Father knew this whole, this whole circumstance, every, every last detail here. All right, now, again, uh, there's a, a lot of work to be done, even on verse 2. And for those of you that have Greek, you know, Dan or whoever else is looking at the Greek text, um, I would, at some point in time, want to come back to this and really explore because it, it's not entirely clear whose heart is in view. It could be the devil's heart uh, rather than Judas's heart. And in the sense that depending on which manuscript variants you read, it could be read that the devil having already determined in his own heart that Judas Iscariot would betray him. In other words, the, it is a heart determination, uh, but it may be Satan's heart that is set on the selection of Judas or put into the heart of Judas either way. Satan was the motivation and Judas was the tool. We have no issues with that, depending on how, uh, what manuscripts you select or, or how you want to apply this. And it's also, it precedes the, the dinner itself. Uh, the heart was already uh, determined to do this prior to dinner taking place. All right, so now, but remember, hold your place here, Luke 22. The Son of Man is going just as it has been determined, but woe. Remember this? So don't think that the tool is excused. All right? Don't think that the tool is excused. It's 22.22. Luke 22.22. Indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. We're so, um, in, our, in our finite understanding on things, um, it, is, it is very Adamic to try to shift responsibility. We can't allow ourselves to do that. Uh, Eve did that, blaming the serpent. Adam did that, blaming Eve. All right. Or blaming God for giving him a crummy woman. All right. It's, it's very Adamic. It's very fallen to try to shift responsibility. And theologians do the same thing in studying the Bible to say, well, you know, Satan moved Judas for this. So it's not really Judas's fault. Is it his fault? If Satan motivated it? Yes, it is. All right. You could even go far, so you could even take it a step further back to say, well, Satan motivated it, but God predetermined it, didn't he? 
If he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? Okay. Can't we say that the Father did this and it's not really Satan's fault? All right. This is where we have to be cautious. We have to identify the fact, and, and I love how explicit Luke twenty two twenty two is. The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Yes, absolute sovereignty, our Father's plan, is in effect. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There is accountability by the agents involved. Why? Because they acted volitionally within their own rebellion, within their own parameters for their own reasons. Satan's not doing this to glorify the Father and achieve the Father's grace eternal plan. Not at all. He's doing it for his own purposes. Likewise, Judas. Judas, yes, Satan put this on his heart, but does that mean that Judas is doing this for Satan's plan? Or is Judas doing this for his own reasons, even with the heart impelling him in this direction? Okay? I think it makes it very clear that, he, that the predetermined plan does not remove the culpability. It is still woe to that man by whom it is determined. Okay? So if, anytime you're struggling with this, and, and we've got folks, I mean, if, uh, if a Calvinistic background is a part of your heritage, then this, this can be something you're going to struggle with. All right? Say, well, God's sovereign. He determined this. Yes, he did. But he also determined this in cooperation with a plan that determined for human volition to be exercised. So how, did that, how does that reconcile? And so often finite thinking says, well, it can't reconcile. Uh, I'm just going to embrace sovereignty and, and deny that there's any reality to, uh, to uh, volition. Okay? And the moment you do that, you're going to violate half of Scripture. You've got to accept both. You've got to accept both. Think about how, how Peter expressed this in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, uh, this man, this is Acts 2.23, he says um, in verse 22, men of Israel, reading now from, I know, I know I'm jumping from place to place, are you following me here? Acts 2.22, all right. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Delivered over by, now notice, the predetermined plan of God. But predetermined plan doesn't sit by itself. Notice that? The predetermined plan and including the foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you do not separate, never separate the predetermined plan of God from the foreknowledge of God. The moment you do that, you've damaged the scriptures. You've damaged the, what God has revealed. Likewise, uh, in terms of our own predestination, who are predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. Once again, who are elected, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Time and time again, I don't care. Any path, you look at Romans 8, look at 1 Peter, show me a passage. Okay? And, I, and I'll be the first one. I'm, I'll be more Calvinistic than any Calvinist defending foreknowledge or de, defending predestination but i will also attach to it what scripture attaches to it foreknowledge every single time and so there it is all right back to john 13 then the devil crafted a plan and drafted an instrument the instrument himself is culpable why was that instrument selected why did god permit that instrument to be selected Remember in Job 1, Satan can't do one thing until he gets permission from the Father, including what he can touch and what he can't touch, who he can kill, who he can't kill, who he can work with. If, if the Father puts a hedge around somebody, then his hands off, Satan can't touch him. Why does the Father permit Satan to move Judas's heart and then ultimately to even enter into his body and take control? Which happens here uh, shortly in, uh, in John 13. There's already a heart whisper or a heart uh, movement, a heart um, putting into. And by the way, I, I've, I accept that the best manuscript testimony in the best grammatical sense is that it's Judas's heart, not Satan's heart. But it's a, it is an interesting thing to consider. And you at least have to explore it and, and uh, pray over the variant readings there out of verse 2. But having already put into the heart... Put into the heart, like he did with David in, in First Chronicles. He whispered into his ear. 
he, uh, he moved David to number the armies of Israel. Remember that event? Now here he's moving uh, Satan. He's put it into his heart as if the heart itself is not already desperately wicked. <laughs> Who can know it, right? The, the, the heart of man, sick, desperately wicked. Who can know it? As if that's not already enough. Then Satan puts this other thing in there. All right. So why does the father uh, permit that to happen? Because it's the father's predetermined plan. It's the father's predetermined plan, including the foreknowledge of knowing who the traitor was going to be. Why did Jesus select the twelve? Why was Judas included among the twelve? You know, I mean, was it just bad luck on Jesus' part that he happened to pick eleven believers and one unbeliever? Okay. No. It was Calvinist luck. Okay. It's called God's sovereignty. Working through human choices. And, uh, I, you know, it, it is remarkable that we, we, we know the first day, the first meeting when he meets Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We know the first meeting when he meets Matthew. Uh, the first meeting when he meets Nathaniel and some of these other guys. We don't have the first ever time that he comes face to face with Judas Iscariot. That's never described in the gospel record anywhere. And so I like to imagine and wonder and, and you know, I guess if it was important, the, the Bible would have had it in there. But I have to wonder, when was that first time event? When did they meet? How did they meet? Where did they meet? We know so little about Judas. I'm going to give you, before we're done today, I'll give you background on Judas under point two. I'll give you some background on Judas. But the Father has a chosen instrument. That's Jesus Christ. Satan has a chosen instrument. This is Judas. Okay, we need to understand this. What's happening here? Satan views himself as a counterfeit father. Satan views himself and ultimately he has another instrument he's getting ready to unleash upon this world. His beloved son he's getting ready to release upon this world. Okay, and these are the two that the Bible calls sons of perdition. The only two. The only two characters in the Bible ever called son of perdition are Judas Iscariot and Antichrist. And I find the parallelism here pretty, pretty awesome. All right, crafted and drafted. Crafted a plan and drafted an instrument. But his, his crafted plans are being frustrated. I mean, how many times has he tried to kill Jesus? How many assassins has he sent? How many efforts were there to drive him off a cliff or to stone him or to, to have him arrested? And every time they'd send soldiers out. You know, six months ago at Feast of Tabernacles, they sent soldiers out. And the soldiers went there and listened to what he had to say and were amazed. This guy's an awesome Bible teacher. <laughs> they go back to the Pharisees. Well, all of his plans are getting frustrated because the Father's not going to allow any of them to work until tomorrow, until Friday, right? Until the Passover lamb can, can bear the sin of the world on the cross. Now, coming back to uh, John 13 here. The Father also has a plan. So in verse 2, you've got all these participles about the devil. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. The better reading would be Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. I'll give that to you under point two. Um, knowing that the father had already given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and that he was going back to God. Now, here's the father's preparation. The father's attendant circumstances. So point two, God the Father crafted a plan and called an instrument for volitional obedience. Jesus didn't have to be drafted. Jesus volitionally accepted the assignment. God the Father crafted a plan and called an instrument for volitional obedience. And this was done, that's why I say this goes back days, weeks, months, millennia. From the foundation of the earth. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. God the Father crafted a plan and called an instrument for volitional obedience. Knowing that he, the Father had given all things into His hands. When did He do that? I'll show you the reference here in a moment. It's from John 3. It's a, it's a, it's a neat... It's a neat uh, contrast there as well not only chapter 1 with chapter 13 but chapter 3 with chapter 13 we get a reminder that he came into the world not just to be in the world but to save the world 
And that's why the contrast in chapter 3 becomes important as this unfolds here in chapter 13. So John 13, 3, compared to Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, as quoted in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, also the statements in John 3, verses 35 and 36, that relate to the Father giving all things into His hand. So this is His volitional, or His uh, instrument that the Father calls for volitional obedience. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. The um, the Davidic Psalm, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry, brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. And has not turned to the proud, nor those who lapse into falsehood. Now, all of this, of course, is true of David, but it looks forward to the truth related to Christ. Remember, the, uh, Jesus Christ rejected the temptation to bow down and worship Satan. Remember that uh, he said, thou shalt serve the Lord God only, right? And, and uh, so he fulfilled here Psalm 40 and verse 4 when he made the Lord his trust and did not turn to the proud. Did not turn to the, the one who lapsed into falsehood. Satan tried to say, you can have the crown without the cross. I'll give you all these kingdoms. You can have the earth and all its glory. Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to trust my Father and I'm rejecting you. And uh, in so doing, he applied here Psalm 40 in verse 4. And I love that. Verse 5, many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I could declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. And then here's the key, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. It's not about the ritual of the Old Testament. There's a reality is what the Father desires. My ears you have opened. And this is what gets translated in the Septuagint and brought into Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, as a body you have prepared for me. And there's a lot of work to be done on that, but it's not an issue. It's not a problem. My ears you have opened and a body you have prepared for me. Uh, we can handle that. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And here we have, once again, a, a dual fulfillment. We have a reality here that was true in David's day. Uh, but we have the fulfillment of this that's true for Jesus Christ. And then we see it cited in the book of Hebrews and understand the great relationship this has for every church age believer priest we're here to do the will of our father we're here to accomplish his work we're a part of his body you know a body thou hast prepared for me was that the mortality of his humanity or was that us the body and bride of christ okay so we start to realize that there's a whole lot more there's other layers to this once you uh once you think it through now um Notice in the uh, follow-up of this, he says in verse 9 of Psalm 40, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. And what's interesting is that this is what Jesus intends to do as soon as his work on the cross is finished. That he intends to celebrate, he intends to worship, he intends to testify to <clears throat> the great things of God the Father once that work is done. All right? Doug, there was a truck that just came in I didn't recognize. If you don't mind. Thank you. All right, so let's leave there and go to Hebrews 10. Take a look at how this passage is quoted in the New Testament. Looks like they were just turning around. All right. We have a very popular parking lot. <clears throat> All right, Hebrews 10. The law was not the pinnacle of the Father's plan. The law 
Couldn't save anybody. It's only a shadow of the good things to come. Not the very form of things. Can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The ritual did not justify. The ritual did not provide that eternal life. Not the ritual. The reality behind it, you understand. And the picture it was looking forward to. It says in verse 3, in those sacrifices there was a reminder of sins year by year. And nobody in the Old Testament ever had their sins removed. They had their sins atoned for. They were covered. They were passed over in forbearance, but they were not removed. Okay? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're simply a picture. God the Father would never be infinitely, eternally sacrificed by goat blood. Okay? Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. So he quotes Psalm 40 in this. Psalm 40 was designed for the entrance of God in the flesh, God as man. But a body you have prepared for me. The fact, of course, that his soul and spirit preexisted the impregnation of the virgin. The soul and spirit entered into the uh, babe there in the virgin's womb. A body you have prepared for me. And it goes on, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Then notice, he goes on to comment on this in verses eight and following. But we see that this is the plan of God, that it was painting a picture of Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, all of that was fulfilled. All of that was complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The, the once and for all redemption, but what the blood of uh, bulls and goats could not do, Jesus did once and for all. And so we see this, uh, verse 10, as far as the, the will of God in this. Uh, Behold, I have come to do your will. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay? The once and for all work of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, these priests are daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, once and for all, one sacrifice for all time. To me, this is uh, also a, a big component of why the Catholic Mass is so atrocious in the sense that they view it as a re-sacrifice over and over and over again. Every Mass is turned into the body of Christ and they re-sacrifice him every single time. One sacrifice for all time. He then sat down at the right hand of God. And so you understand this, waiting for that time on until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he perfected for all time who? Those who are sanctified. It goes back to that one work, that one fateful day, the consummation of the ages. It's a powerful thing. All right. And so our sins are taken away. We're not just simply covered over. We're not simply, uh, he's not in forbearance passing over our sins in view of something future yet to come. That's it. That's what takes it all away. That's how we can lead captivity captive and, uh, and so forth. All right. And it's all going to come together on this night. Now, um, back to John then, and let's look at chapter 3. Remind ourselves... It's all been given to the Son. Why did He come into the world? He came into the world to save the world. Not to judge the world, but to save the world. And coming into the world, we're told in chapter 1, and the need for salvation here in chapter 3. Verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And has given all things into His hand. Understand this. The Son who volitionally laid aside His privileges, volitionally uh, emptied Himself, volitionally came to this earth, humbled Himself, was found in the likeness of a man. And to me, this is what is more awesome than even the foot washing. Okay? Some people say, oh, well, you know, it's... Feet are dirty and feet are stinky and it's just kind of, you know, it's unpleasant and it's, 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 the, it's the most humble thing he could have ever done 
was wash their feet. I said, no, I think leaving eternal glory and being placed into a, a female womb and being born and, and, you know, having diapers changed and growing up. And I mean, <laughs> the whole human experience is humbling. Okay. I think feet washing, yes, it's a humble act, but it is not the pinnacle of humility. And, and it was a, it was an illustration by which he was teaching the truths related to cleansing the truth relating to what he was doing on the cross. And that's what we, if we miss that, we miss the whole point of this. So when I say that, um, you know, he comes into the world and um, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This has given all things into his hand is, is uh, the recognition that the son is obedient and the son is emptying himself. And here he is in his humanity. Of course, the father is going to give him all things. He's the heir of all things. So he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. All right. Father loves the Son. The Son loves his own. The Father's given all things into his hand. The Son is, uh, has come from the Father. The Son is going back to the Father. But in order to go back to the Father in victory... He has to lay down his life for the sheep. In order to lay down his life for the sheep, he has to uh, allow the traitor to betray him. <laughs> and so here he is. Back to John 13 then. I think the, um, the truth on this is amazing. So the devil put it into Judas's heart. But Judas still has to volitionally go and do it. The Father has given all things to the Son, and he has, a, he has a heart for the Father, but he still has to volitionally go through with it, doesn't he? And so he gets up from supper, lays aside his garments, takes a towel, girds himself, and begins to wash their feet. Point uh, F, then, the last point under point one, subpoint F. Jesus' simple actions after dinner vividly painted the next day's anticipated activity. Jesus' simple actions after dinner. Should be an apostrophe there for Jesus's. Jesus' simple actions after dinner vividly painted the next day's anticipated activity. What's he going to do the next day? He's going to lay aside. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to cleanse us. Going to purchase our redemption. And then he's going to take up his garments again when he's done. I didn't really thought of this as much until uh, I started to see all of the Old Testament prophets and how often they did this, how often they did uh, dramatic portrayals, how often they did pantomiming. And Ezekiel, for example, would lay down on one side for 390 days and be tied down. Then he would roll over and he'd lay up for another 40 days. And then um, he'd have to bake bread over a fire cooked on human excrement. And uh, there's an unpleasant thing, right? And all the things. And, and all of these dramatic portrayals. Why? Why would he dig a hole in a wall? Why would he do these things? Why are these, these vivid portrayals what they are? Why, why did Moses lift up a, a serpent on a standard? What was the point for these Old Testament prophets to do all of these dramatic portrayals, these pantomimes, right? Like they're playing um, charades or whatever, okay? Because they didn't have PowerPoint slideshows, that's why. They, this, was, <laughs> this was how they portrayed things. This is how they taught things. They presented it visually. They preached audibly and they, they, uh, they communicated this. And this is what he's doing here. He lays aside his garments even as he lays down his life. Same vocabulary. He does a work of cleansing. And then he takes up his garments again. All right. And uh, these disciples are still busy arguing with each other and trying to figure things out. And Peter's uh, horrified. Doesn't want Jesus washing his feet. All right. So what happens here? Um, we're told that he arose. That he arose, 
Um, this too, by the way, is very Hebrew thinking. This, this whole passage is filled with um, um, language that we might expect to find in the Old Testament. You know, how many, how many times do we find uh, Abraham arose and departed? You know, he arose and did this. He arose and went out. It's very idiomatic. The verb is a gero, uh, to raise, to rise, to lift. Typically, it's used in resurrection applications, that he rose. Okay, but also it's idiomatic. It's a Hebraism that reflects the Hebrew verb kum. Q-U-W-M, kum, number 6965. And just simply reflects the, uh, the, the Hebrew mindset here of the author and what's, what's happening. All right. Um, and, and more than a hundred and something times in the Old Testament, this is the circumstance that somebody would arise and depart. Or they would arise and do something. They would arise and deliver. They would arise and so forth. And laying aside his garment, tithemi, to put, to place, to lay down. He laid aside his garment. And this is a verb. This is an expression that so... Um, gripped the apostle john i think that he made it a a significant uh, portion of his gospel and even his epistle first john three sixteen uses this expression but this was the term that was used in john 10 for the good shepherd who tithemes his soul who lays down his life he tithemes his psuche he lays down his soul remember it wasn't the physical death of jesus christ on the cross that that redeemed us all right. He was still physically alive when he said, it is finished. He was still physically alive when the darkness ended. He was still physically alive when redemption was done. And then said, it is finished. And Father, into thy hands. Father, he's praying again. He's no longer forsaken at that point. Father, into thy hands I commit my living human spirit. He's not going to give the Father a dead spirit. Are you kidding me? All right. So he's still physically alive when the work of redemption is done. It was that spiritual death. He had authority to lay it down and to take it up again. So we have this tithemi language. It's T-I-T-H-E-M-I used a uh, hundred times in the New Testament. Strong's number 5087-5087. And the ones I want to key in on are the, are the usages by the uh, Apostle John. Starting in chapter 10 here. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd tithemis his psuche, his soul for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Now, isn't that sad? That, um, is there a question? Uh, for those three hours of darkness. Three hours of darkness was as long as he stayed dead. That's right. As long as he stayed, he stayed spiritually dead for three hours. He stayed physically dead for three days. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was once again restored. He took up his life again. Excellent question. All right. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Interestingly enough, uh, my own is an emphasis in chapter 13 here where uh, he loved his own to the end. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that notice I may take it again. I may take it again. And this is Lombano. This is take up. And it's the same verb we have in chapter 13. When he Lombano, he takes up his garment again. Same language, same imagery. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. How about that? It's not Judas's fault. It's not Satan's fault. It's not the father's fault. Jesus says, I do this on my own initiative. There's no compulsion. The Father put forth a plan, but I agreed with the plan. He assigned it to me. He entrusted it to me. He gave me this authority. He gave me this responsibility. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. And so when uh, he says it is finished... That's exactly what he's done. He's taken his spiritual life right back up again. He has authority to do that. 
We have it here in uh, chapter 13 in verse 4 where he lays aside his garments, but it's going to come back again further down in the chapter, verses 37 and 38. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will tithe me. I will lay down my soul for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your soul for me? Lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow till you deny me these three times. Over to chapter 15. I think you get the idea what an impact this had on John and how he included it in several of these different developments. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, it's a new commandment. And this is a part of the, uh, the newness. This is a part of unveiling the coming church. And they're not going to understand it right away, but they will understand it once uh, the Helper comes to make these things clear. He's giving them a mystery doctrine that they cannot grasp while they're still in the uh, dispensation of Israel. But this new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. And so it's expected of us. We're we're to follow that pattern of Christ. And then finally, 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Not just in his gospel record, but in his epistle. Not John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. We know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If we have this love, if we are truly born again. Context for this takes us from verse 13 down to where we are here. But that's all right. Verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he arose, he laid aside his garment and he girded himself. And he girded himself. Girded himself. And uh, in this, the verb itself is really not important. Um, dia zonumi. Um, number 1241. Because the word itself, uh, and there's, there's several compounds too. There's dia, ana, uh, there's just zonumi by itself without the, the, the prefix. And then there's a zonuo and there's a diazonumi and anazonumi. There's a number of compounds related to this. Um, but the uh, interesting thing is if, if tithemi had an impact on John, this girding has an impact on Peter. And all of the uses of diazonumi that we see here relate to Peter every time it's used. In John 21, verse 7 and verse 18, in Acts 12, 8, and then finally Peter himself uses the term in 1 Peter 1, 13. And, and I have to wonder, I'm out of time, but I have to wonder how um, this action of Jesus wrapping the towel around himself and then uh, this very night in which Peter was so prideful, so prideful, I'm going to die with you, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And this is the night that not only in which he was betrayed, uh, but the night in which Peter denied the Lord three times. So when we come back next week, we'll uh, we'll come back. I just don't I don't want to rush through this in 30 seconds. So we'll uh, go ahead and stop it here. Then under point two, we'll spend some time next week describing Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And um, what in the world's an Iscariot anyway? Well. Nobody knows. And then so we'll, we'll discuss what the options are. <laughs> I mean, God knows. But it's, it's remarkable how for 2,000 years now of New Testament history, um, the church has debated Iscariot and what does Iscariot mean. And uh, to the point now where um, we have so many different possibilities and ideas and thoughts that uh, ultimately I think you can make good arguments for several of them and, and we'll, we'll find out when we get there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all we can say is that uh, Judas Iscariot is different from, from Judas not Iscariot. And uh, we can keep two of the disciples straight that way. And, uh, and beyond that, uh, we just have to wait till we get there. Father, thank you for your truth. And Father, I'm just, I, I hope that in today's class, some of the um, 
some of the imagery of these introductory verses can have come across, come across, Father, and in a way that just hit me. I don't know, maybe maybe uh, didn't explain it very well, but Father, this introduction is like the introduction to chapter one. It's it's just powerful in the way that it vividly portrays things and and prepares for the rest of the book, Father. And so, just as our Savior came into the world, He's now getting ready to go out of the world, and and He came to His own, and He loved His own to the end, and. Father, we just see all these things. We see the plan of Satan unfolding through a chosen instrument. We see your plan unfolding through a chosen instrument. And Father, um, you sent the light into the world and the the darkness could not overpower it. Father, there's no, uh, no surprise to us that the devil's instrument and your instrument come head to head right here in this chapter. And, and, uh, Jesus so humbly and faithfully washes his feet and tells him, go do what you're going to do. And, uh, Father, that just to me is is an amazing thing, and I thank you for it. And I pray as we continue to study these truths and continue to study the events in this upper room that you would bless us and encourage us, Father. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most uh, blessed and and, uh, precious and amazing name. Amen.